science. No Malcolm with us this week, but uh, no worries, because we do have Hannah Bestwick with us, hey. as usual, I think. Yeah, quite usual. Yeah. Quite usual. I wasn't here last week, though. No. I had other things to do. Yeah, right. Presumably you were watching... <laughs> Sorry, guys. You were watching Star Trek, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of course. That's what we do when we're not here. We watch Star Trek. And, uh, Only Star Trek. <laughs> well, mainly Star Trek. Um, and uh, I'm delighted to say that we're joined in the studio by Tushna Commissariat from uh, Physics World. Hi, Andrew. Good to be back. It's yeah. been a while. It has it? been a while. Do you yeah. know, I was just thinking that uh, the first time I ever did this show without Malcolm to hold my hand and make it better <laughs> was <laughs> yeah, you were my guest. I was indeed. And yeah. we talked all about the recent discovery of gravitational waves. We did. Which yeah. is funny. We'll come to that in a minute. Because um, I just wanted to make an announcement. It's a very important announcement to everybody in Bristol, which is... Stop what you're doing tonight, cancel your plans and go and see Blade Runner 2049 in the biggest screen you can find with the best sound. It is an amazing film. Go and see it. That's my announcement out the way. Okay. Uh, no spoilers there. It is amazing there. And, um, uh, so Toshna, why is it particularly interesting that, well it's not interesting is it, but why, <laughs> why did I make a point of saying that, uh, that the gravitational waves are what we talked about on the first show we did together. Well, it might be because the experiment that detected the gravitational waves, that's the LIGO experiment, won the Nobel Prize for their discovery only last week. Indeed it did. So after we went off of the air last week, uh, not only did we lose Tom Petty, very sadly, <laughs> shortly after the show, but um, Institute, uh, sorry, the Nobel Prize for Physics was awarded uh, for, for gravitational waves, the discovery of gravitational waves. Is that, that's what they want it for, right? Yes, that's right, yes. Um, perhaps we'll go back, take a step back, just in case there's anybody listening who, yes, doesn't, <laughs> <laughs> who doesn't know, like Anna, what a gravitational wave is. Um, Tushna, go on, tell us. Well, it's, it's really exciting. You know, I've been talking about them nonstop for the past year or so, it seems, but I just, I never tire of talking about them. So, yes, I'd love to tell you again, Hannah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so, really, a gravitational wave is kind of almost exactly what it says on the tin. It's a wave of gravity. And because of the nature of gravity, it's, it's a ripple. They call it ripples in space-time. And that is literally what it is. It's, it's, it's a wave that actually goes through the actual fabric of space and time. And it, it sort of squishes it up and opens it up just like a wave would. And um, I know it sounds crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. So uh, what we're talking about here is the fabric of space-time. So mm, we, uh, yeah. we, we often think when we look out, well, I, I certainly I do, even though I kind of have a concept of space-time mm -hmm. as a thing. Mm -hmm. When I look out into space, I don't think of it as the fabric of space-time. <laughs> but it's gravitational waves prove essentially yes, that it is yes 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 there are um it's particularly exciting because it's always another test for um relativity and einstein and yep he was right again <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah, so basically they're generated when you have very large, um, almost sort of 
spherical bodies that are moving around each other really fast. And in this case, and all of the ones that we've detected, it's always been two black holes. Mm -hmm. So you have these two black holes and they get close enough to each other and they get trapped in each other's orbits and then they sort of start spinning around each other and then they slowly sort of fall in. It's called an in-spiral, that's what they call it. So they spiral in towards each other and they collapse into each other and they form one big black hole. But you have loads of energy. I mean, black holes, they're these behemoths, these monsters, and they have so much energy and power in them. So when this kind of thing happens, it's a cataclysmic event. Yeah. And um, the energy of the collision and the spiral, because you can imagine the spinning around really fast, that has to go somewhere. And a large amount of that energy gets thrown out once they spiral in and merge in the form of gravitational waves. And these waves, they sort of, you know, well, they wave out across the entirety of the cosmos and um, they make the smallest little sort of changes um, in in the space-time continuum, um, just like a wave would on the surface of water, for example. And what the LIGO experiment does is it detects these minuscule little changes um you know that are less than 10 to the power 12th of an size of an atom it's the mm. smallest changes are they are they small changes because the events happen so far away yes very okay. much very so if we were closer they'd, they'd be much more obvious is that um they wouldn't ever really be obvious in the sense of if you were on a planet really close by, that you know you wobble as they went past, okay. or something yeah. like that. It's not them. quite, yeah, not like woo. Okay, no, not not quite like that. Um, there's also a lot to do with the the frequency of these waves, etc. And um, the sort of it's it's all really like depends on the mass of the black hole and how fast they were spinning and how much of the mass. Um, so it's it's really easy. For example, with the latest one that they saw. Um, they had uh, two black holes um, that collided and they were, um, I've completely forgotten the numbers now, but something like, you know, 35 solar masses and 12 solar masses. And you add up that and the mass of the black hole that forms is never the same as those two. So it's a bit less and whatever, whatever, however much less it is, if you say it's five solar masses fewer, it's those five solar masses have been converted into that energy. So and that, and that radiates out across the cosmos, and we really weren't sure if we could detect these because it's such a small, such a such a minute little vibration, <laughs> and there's so much um, noise in this system that it's an absolute testament to how amazingly powerful LIGO is and how fine-tuned that they've got it, that they've spotted it now. And they've spotted it not once, not twice, but four times. Oh, that's incredible. So so that's amazing. Way, way back when Einstein came <laughs> up with this idea, he, he, he didn't actually think that they were real, right? Well... I, I, it's one of those things. He did think they were real. He just didn't think we'd ever be able to detect okay. them. So he thought you'd just have to take it on proof of everything else in the theory of general relativity. Um, the, the proof of that would say that, no, these things exist, but, it, you know, it is, it is really such a small measurement that he just didn't, he couldn't think of everything that he knew at that point in terms of the technology that we had. He didn't think we'd ever be that good with it and the sort of the technology that LIGO uses it's a big interferometer and that technology was just kind of 
really coming into its own then and we didn't have lasers quite yet that was also something that was kind of towards the end of Einstein's life and so he didn't know that we'd have this amazing power of laser interferometry and that's what it is (laughs) so like LIGO um, Mm -hmm. those are Letters made yes. into a word, uh, to <laughs> Lego, and maybe actually maybe it doesn't mean that much to people uh, listening. Some mm. of the people who are listening maybe that the word Lego means very little to them. Um, perhaps if we had somebody here who had actually been to Lego, <laughs> they could tell us what it looked like. Maybe. Uh, well, <laughs> you might be in luck. Um, so LIGO, first of all, it is the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, LIGO. And um, it's an observatory, yes, but it's in two bits. So basically what interferometry is, is that you have um, you have two arms at a right angle. So all you have to imagine is a right angle. And if you take a laser light and you put it at the junction of where these two arms come out at right angle to each other and you send half of your laser light down one arm and the other half down the other arm and the key part here is that the two arms are at right angles to each other the point of interferometry is to measure if there are any changes in time and space in measurement or in arm length Um, the light will not be the same when it comes back so what happens is you have the light at the source and then you have mirrors at the two far ends so the light goes to the end bounces off of the mirrors and comes back to the middle now light travels at the same speed always so in theory if you have no difference between these two arms if everything is exactly the same the light would come back and it would just cancel or you know you'd have a bright spot or a dark spot Uh, constructive or destructive uh, interference but if for example anything is different in one arm over the other you measure that you get to measure that because the light gets slowed down or maybe it goes faster or or something like that you get some some weird anomaly so that's what interferometry is and that's what LIGO does now um, the early sort of interferometers that you'd have in a lab or something, they, they were a lot smaller. And what these guys realised, um, what the Nobel Prize winners realised when they were designing this way back when, um, is that the arms need to be really big. So when we talk really big here, they're four kilometres long. <laughs> That's how big each arm is. So there's two observatories, one in Hanford and one in Livingston. They're both in the US. Um, they're out way in the middle of nowhere. And basically, if you look at them from sort of high above, from a helicopter or something, they're just two long arms and they just go out into the distance of these two pipes or tunnels. And um, I got to vis- visit the one in in Louisiana um, in, in earlier this year, that was in March. And it's, it's amazing when you go out there um, because it's, it's out in the middle of quite literally nowhere. <laughs> it takes forever to get there. And as you drive up to the sort of the front gate, um, there's like a row of about 100 um, orange cones slowing you down and you can't drive faster than 10 miles per hour. And they have these big signs saying vibration sensitive um, experiment currently at work kind of thing. You know, there's no trucks allowed. There's nothing allowed that could make any kind of disturbances. And that's because of how sensitive it is. And it was amazing because when we got there and we went into um, the control room, for example, we were there chatting for a bit and all of a sudden there was this sort of murmur of excitement and they were like, oh, incoming earthquake. And we were like, uh, what? <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, no, don't mind. It's it's on off the coast of Colombia. So that's how sensitive it is wow. that it could detect an incoming earthquake yeah. off oh, wow. the coast of 
Colombia, you know, and apparently, like when the um, uh, when the tsunami happened in Haiti, and that you know it, they had huge sort of um, blips on their monitors, so they can detect um, everything. It, it you know, so yeah. it's it's amazing. It really, it really is amazing. <laughs> is so we've got we've got waves being caused in space time mm-hmm. by two black holes colliding yes. billions of light years away. Yes, causing these lasers to bounce back and forth differently yes exactly exactly and the amazing part actually because um if you kind of dig a little deeper into it your first question is oh well if if these waves actually squeeze space and time um they're they're flowing through the entire fabric of space and time so wouldn't it change both arms by the same amount it's a completely logical question but the amazing part about LIGO is that really it's not a ruler it's a clock so it looks for a difference in the timing of when the light waves come back uh, and they, they would match up peaks and troughs and it's set up so that if something changes in one of the arms, um, it, it, it would light up in the detector. So it's normally set, so it's always dark in the detector if everything's the same. It's destructive interference. You have two, peak, uh, two troughs coming in at the same time. Um, but if something changes, it will light up, okay. and that's what they see. Okay. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM 93.2. We're talking about gravitational waves and the Nobel Prize that was awarded for the discovery of those last week. And Tushner has joined us from Physics World. Tushner. Three people were awarded this mm-hmm. um, Nobel Prize. Who are they and why those three? <laughs> well, um, so the three people were Rainer Weiss, um, Barry Barish, uh, who is apparently the first Barry to ever win a Nobel Prize. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, Kip Thorne. <laughs> ah, Kip Thorne. Kip Thorne, good Kip. old Kip, um, yeah. who so, you know you might have talked about in the past. We've talked about him. We talked about him on the Cosmic Shed, my podcast. I from bet. Inter- Interstellar. Interstellar. Exactly. Yeah. He was the, well, he's had an awful lot to do with the story he in, did, in Interstellar. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, back to gravitational. <laughs> So all three of them, so Weiss, Barish and Thorne, um, they were really instrumental in, in, in getting LIGO off the ground. So what Thorne did, what, what Kip did always was um, he, he's a theor- theoretical physicist. And so he did the calculations that proved that you could pick up gravitational waves using these LIGO detectors. So really, really important stuff. Um, to get the funding <laughs> to get the project off the ground to show that this thing that even Einstein thought you'd never detect yeah, you yeah. can do it we can do it with current technology so he was really key in that and then um, both um, uh, Weiss and Barish they, they were really really crucial in designing and building LIGO and it's you know it's gone through many permutations and combinations um, what many people probably don't know it's been running for many many years over 10 um uh, since 1999, I think almost, uh, and they had to keep upgrading and they had to keep getting better and better and better before they they were capable of detecting. You know, now they've hit their sweet spot. They've got it. The, the machine's working fantastically well. And I should mention that there's also a third detector in Italy, and it's called Virgo, and it, it's the LIGO Virgo collaboration. Really, they all work together. Um, and you have more detectors coming up in India and a few others like Kagra in Japan. And the point of having lots of detectors across the world is that you narrow down exactly where the signal is coming from. So right now, um, with uh, two detectors, they could only tell kind of 
vaguely which part of the sky with three with the most recent one with um, Virgo on it mm. they could narrow it down to an area about the size of Texas I think is what they said uh, in, the, in the night sky in, in the sky yeah right. so and that's actually you know considering quite how big the sky is yeah. and the fact that these things are happening billions of light years away that's mm. amazing and then once like oh, India and Kagra and all the others come on they should be able to pinpoint the source and the great thing about that is that then they'll be able to tell all the other telescopes on the planet oh look this thing's just happened turn and look towards oh, okay. it and um not really with black holes but with some of the other things like neutron stars you might actually get um a lot of light and matter being involved so you could, you'll see um the the the, the the collision happening mm. in in all the other um, you know in X-ray and all mm. of the other wavelengths and that and okay. that will start the era of what is referred to as multi messenger astronomy okay. which is really exciting yeah that's really amazing yeah. isn't it it, it is like um, I, I was thinking the other day about when when radio. Uh, exactly. Came along. Exactly. And there was all those breakthroughs with that. And exactly, because it it was like suddenly looking at the entire universe with a new set of glasses on. You know, you saw things that we'd never seen before, and it just propelled us into this amazing new age of quasars and blazars, and telling us so much about um, things like really old stars, uh, yeah. which I think you're going to talk about yeah, later. We will talk so, about. Yeah, there's yeah. Th- there are some stars which appear to be older than the universe Indeed. itself, which is a bit weird. We'll come to that later in the mm-hmm. show uh, one, one of the things that they did i think it was ligo um, mm-hmm. was to turn the, the the readings that they got into a sound so we can sort of hear yes, the sound yes. of gravitational waves and i can play that now for you i think this is the sound of gravitational waves <laughs> so what are we actually listening to there so you're listening to it over and over again, that little sound. Um, so what you're listening to there is actually the entire phenomenon, the sort of lower um, sound before you get to the peak is as the two black holes get closer and closer together. Um, so they're inspiring towards each other and the frequencies start to increase till you get to a peak just before the actual merger occurs. Um, that's in that in spiral that I mentioned. And right when the merger occurs and you hear that, <laughs> sound yeah. they call that the chirp and that's literally when the collisions just happen and the merger is just occurring and then you have a drop off in the sound and so you can see that in the entire signal that they pick up and it's it's, it's really clear and it's really beautiful and um from that sound, from from this um, data, they can tell everything, including the masses and the sizes and how much energy and how far away. Mm. Um, and it's yeah, it's it's, it's an okay. absolute feat. So it's amazing, isn't it? Is it from the what, I, there were other things up for the for, for the Nobel Prize. Is this the one that you thought was going to win that you wanted to win? Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, um, we thought they'd win last year because they'd had their first discovery out already. But there's you know there's um, in a way, it's good that they've <laughs> they won it this year because they um, had uh, another three discoveries since the first one. So that's great. It's really added to the bulk of evidence for them for how well they're doing. And um, also, what it <laughs> the, the, the Nobel works in some strange ways in terms of some of the sort of archaic policies that they have, and um, not that anyone will really confirm it. <laughs> you yeah. know, the Nobel Committee works in strange and mysterious yeah. ways, yeah. but nominations are said to be needed to be in by February every year. 
Okay. You know, so, and, and LIGO came out with his detection last February. So, right. <laughs> a bit, okay. bit close to the wire. Okay. Well, I, I've been. Um, I don't. I don't like. They've won the Nobel Prize. That's mm-hmm. an amazing thing. What, what do they get for that? Wow. Uh, <laughs> they get a good, nice, large amount of money, which okay. is great. Um, and it's really the, the kudos and the respect yeah. of having won it is still, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of talk now of is it really valid in this day and age when there's so much science being done and it's really hard to nail down just the one thing. But there is still, you know, it's the Nobel Prize. Everyone gets really excited about it. And, you know, the, um, the prize is currently worth, um, well, it's basically 800 and 823, um, 823,000 mm. pounds. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's a good amount of money. <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny thing, though, isn't it? Because it, it sort of celebrates science for, all, for, for something that science isn't. Yes. You know, it's sort of saying one or two or three people yes. did this amazing thing yes, yes. in a moment almost mm-hmm. and have awarded them the prize when there's so many other people involved in, yeah. in science. There's so much. Uh, science involved in it. you know <laughs> discover, science scientific discoveries don't really happen by people sitting under a tree and an no. apple hitting them on the head no. we as people love stories you know we love stories so we follow those stories but that isn't really how science works and then the Nobel Prize to me feels like it does feed into that narrative a bit mm-hmm. is that something that you feel as well is that something that's talked about yeah yeah I think we discussed that quite a bit and um, it, it's especially pertinent nowadays when you have these big science projects and this was especially true for the Higgs you know three years ago and it was kind of like if the Nobel Committee was ever going to break from tradition then that would have been the time to do it and they didn't then so we really didn't think they were going to break now and so it's supposed to be that um, you cannot win the Nobel posthumously so not after you're dead and it's to a maximum of three people so either one or two or three people can win it And yeah, it is. It's it's not very, you know, it's not very um, representative of the collaborative nature of science today. Definitely not. But it's um, there's a lot of issues around it. You know, they they. <laughs> what was really promising with this one is that at least in the you know in the official citation, they named the detector and the collaboration. You know, they said for decisive contributions to the LIGO detector. So in, at least in some ways it was acknowledged a bit more, whereas the Higgs one just didn't mention the huge machine and the thousands of people across the globe working on it. Um, yeah. I, I, I kind of also, I understand that it'd be really difficult for them. How do they give it? How do they divvy it up between a thousand people? The LIGO collaboration is spread across the world. Mm. It's over a thousand people. The so. National Lottery did it. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, I, I don't know. If you ask me, I think they ought to give it to collaborations when it is that kind of thing and maybe let the collaboration pick the representatives to come collect the prize and then the money can go to the collaboration itself you know that can go straight into the science or does the money does the money not go directly into the collaboration into the project no does it is it like a prize that you have for yourself oh yeah absolutely it goes to the people Huh. The people. Oh, I did not. I yeah. did not think that was the case. So, if you if, if you've been on Twitter or anything, you've yeah. seen you've seen the celebrations from uh, yes. from the LIGO team. Yeah, they're absolutely like for them, you know, like the like the Higgs team, um, you know, like CERN, LIGO absolutely fe- feels like it's their win, and I mm. don't think they have any bad feeling towards the 
three people who, yes, were instrumental, you know. Mm. But, I mean, uh, Ray Weiss said in his, you know, he was the one who they phoned up live to talk through the ceremony. And he said he he was the first to say that this is, you know, this is a thing that takes a village. It's it's all 1,000 people. It's all of their work, yeah. you know. And so they're very aware of it, too. I don't think any of them are pretending, oh, yeah, if I hadn't done yeah. my work, this thing wouldn't have happened. Yeah. No, I, the, the quotes that are coming out of uh, after the winners are all saying that. But there is a there is an elephant in the room, isn't yes. there? Yes. They're all... Well, they're all men. And they've all been men for an awfully long time. It has. In fact, if, if, you, if you put the statistics in the last time that a, a, a woman won uh, the Physics Nobel Prize, then that would mean, if you work it out as, as a chance, that um, it's a 1 in 170 trillion, 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 trillion chance. Oh, wow. That that's just chance. <laughs> that just makes me more sad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, wow. it, that we're expected to believe that less than 1% mm. of the world's top physicists are women. Exactly. It's, it's so funny. I mean, normally the excuse is that the Nobel is really late, right? Um, you, the prizes for work done 50, 60 years ago. And so it actually does not represent current um, sort of uh, statistics of women in physics and women in science and things like that. But, you know, that's just simply just not really holding true in terms of look at CERN, look at LIGO. You know, there they could have been yeah. there could have been a few people there. Um, and, you know, there's that whole list of people who really should have won the Nobel and who were excused for many reasons, like Jocelyn Belbonnel for, for, you know, pulsars. And people love saying, we recently ran an article with her and someone wrote in to Physics World to say that oh well it was probably because she was a student and you know the Nobel is given to someone who's who has a whole career behind them and that might have been fine if that was true but then a few years later <laughs> there was another PhD student who happened to be a man who happened to have worked on Pulsars with his PhD professor and what do you know he won the Nobel right. <laughs> so it's, you know I mean it's, I, I don't obviously I don't think it's a, a decision that they're making I think it's just ingrained in the way that yeah they think, I, I think that probably the um and people love saying, oh, well, do you want to start giving Nobel Prizes away just to, you know, so that some women in there, that's no, absolutely <laughs> not. But I think that maybe some um, bias training yeah. could be of good use. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I th- I, there's, there are plenty of studies that have been done that have shown that even if you belong to a, to a minority about which a, st- a stereotype is believed, yes. you believe that stereotype. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we are culturally... These stereotypes are constantly culturally mm. um, reinforced. They're ingrained into yeah. you, into everyone's psyche. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listen, I, I think it's wonderful <laughs> that, they dis- that they discovered uh, gravitational waves. I think it's brilliant that they got the Nobel Prize, but clearly the Nobel Prize has a little bit of learning to do. Mm-hmm. So we did say that th- there are some stars, there's a recent story come out in the science press, that there are s- s- some stars which appear to be older than the universe itself which if you think about the fact that uh, the universe started with a big bang (laughs) that would not make an awful lot of sense so i thought to myself i need an answer to this who shall i speak to and so i spoke to professor ethan siegel and professor ethan siegel is a cosmologist who studies the big bang and i began by asking him how this could possibly we sure hope there aren't stars that are older than the universe, because that would be a problem for the universe. So uh, when we look out at the universe, we look out at stars, we have different ways of measuring their ages. When we look at the universe, we can look at 
all the aftermath of the Big Bang, how structure has formed, how all of this took place. And we can say, well, here's when we think the first stars in the universe formed. And it's only about one or 200 million years after the Big Bang, we should have the first stars. And in theory, if you form low enough mass stars, some of those should still be around in the Milky Way today. Um, so you can have stars that are almost as old as the universe itself. We can measure the universe's age from the Big Bang's leftover glow that we first detected in the 1960s, and we've measured much more accurately uh, with missions like COBE and WMAP, and most recently the European Space Agency's Planck mission. Um, so we have some very detailed measurements that we can extrapolate the age of the universe from. The thing is, we also think we know how stars work. So if you take a look at stars and you say, well, I know how stars work, what are the properties of this star, and you can measure it accurately enough, then you should be able to come up with an age for the star. Now, in the past, we had had, you know, we know today the age of the universe is about 13.8 billion years. That's how long our observable universe has been around since the Big Bang. And there's only an uncertainty of about plus or minus 0.1 billion years. So you say, okay, that's that's how old the universe is. I better not have any stars older than that. About 20 years ago, people were measuring the ages of stars and saying, oh, you have these places where the stars are between 14 and 16 billion years old. And you said, well, that's a problem if that's true. It turned out that there were some systematic errors that have been identified. And now the ages of those are more in the 12, 13, 13 and a half billion year range. That works out fine. There is one star very close by. It's only about 190 light years away um, that we've looked at and we've determined an age for it of about 14.4 billion years. And there's a plus or minus on it of about 600 million years. So you could say, well, maybe it's just at that edge, like our uncertainties are wrong and it's just at that edge. But what's far more likely is that this star has undergone some weird evolution where it looks older than it actually is. Someone once said to me, the problem with looking back at the history of the universe is when you see the universe today, all you see are the survivors. All you see are the relics. So if you say like, oh, I have a simulation and I can simulate how solar systems form and I can't get a solar system to form with four inner rocky planets and four outer gas giants. Well, you can if you throw in a fifth gas giant and you let it get ejected. But you would never have known that looking at our solar system today because all we see is the survivors. So similarly, if you look at this star and you say this star has the evidence of being older, than the universe actually allows, then you'll say, oh, well, it must not have always been like this. Perhaps it had, you know, it went through a normal life cycle. Something happened to it to make it appear to be older today than it actually is. And that's what we see now. So that's my guess as to what's going on with these stars that appear older than the universe. Whenever you have a tension like that, you know, it's very tempting to say, oh, uh, science just doesn't know anything. Science, science is wrong all the time. And maybe they're wrong about the age of the universe or maybe they're wrong about st how stars work. But what's usually the case is this is a learning opportunity. This is an opportunity for us to say, you know, 
with all of the stars and all of the astrophysical objects out there in the universe, it stands to reason that these one in a million or one in a billion or even one in a trillion things are going to show up. Ah, indeed they are. That's uh, Professor Ethan Siegel. Now, we did promise on the BCFM Facebook that we were going to talk not only about space. So um, here's another topic for you. Um, pseudoscience in the abortion debate. And there's an article in The Guardian about calling an end to pseudoscience in the abortion debate. Take it away. Uh, well, I mean, it's it's sort of coming in the... There's going to be a referendum in Ireland in uh, 2018, so they're kind of trying to call out all this pseudoscience. Uh, one particular thing that they did mention was um, somebody, when questioned what, what they have against abortion, mentioned something called gl uh, glossios, glossios? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that links having an abortion with, uh, with breast cancer, increased okay. chance of having breast cancer, but okay. that's... It's not not a thing. No, it's not doesn't exist. That, that's um, not even a thing. And all the evidence says that there is no link between exactly. yeah, having an abortion. Exactly. And, and this is, you know, eight. There's 50 studies with eight, over 83,000 breast cancer patients found zero link between having an abortion and increased chance of having uh, getting breast cancer. And like I say, glossios, glossios, glossios. It's not a it's thing. Not, it's yeah, a made-up word, which is shocking. That you know. Yeah, it, it's it's it purely for fear-mongering. I'm exactly. sure. Exactly, and it was mentioned in Parliament. You know that that someone is coming up with just fake things. It's like saying yeah. unicorn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and no one really questioned. And people it, so will be like, yeah, 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 yeah. Because sure. yeah. yeah. it feeds unicorn. into a narrative that they want. It feeds into a narrative that, that some people want to say that having an abortion is a terrible, awful thing for someone that needs one. Yeah. And when something feeds into that, to the way you already, the thing you already believe, you just accept it. You don't question it in the same way you question something that doesn't automatically feed into what you already believe. Um, and there was even, there's even been huge, huge extensive studies into whether or not an abortion even has like um, an impact on your, your mental health. And it just, there's, almost there's little to zero evidence yeah. that it has a negative impact on your uh, or any lasting yeah. mental yeah. health issues. I mean, that study was really interesting because it, it, it really looked into the fact that these claims were made, that it would have um, an impact on women long after they actually had the abortion. So, you know, the, these myths almost covered all bases. They said, oh, maybe maybe you'll be, you'll be a bit sad after you have it and then you'll be fine. But then long after, you'll have this awful sort of mental scarring almost. And, mm. and they tried to bring in the fact that, it, you know, it, it's, it's that classic thing where you try to bolster um, your pseudoscience with something that sounds science-y. So yeah. they said, oh, you know, hormonal changes. And yes, everyone knows women and hormones, right? And yeah. oh, yes, God, of course, yeah. this, this will happen. So it, it all feeds into this, this you know, that it uses all the right words, the buzzwords, and oh yes, of course you don't want poor women scarred for life, and and it's it's so it's insidious. Yeah. If you ask me, it's so insidious that they think it's all right to bring in that kind of language yeah. um, for for what is undoubtedly a difficult decision for anyone, you mm. know. And and that study found that there is no such thing. And in fact, um, I've completely forgotten the statistics, so I won't make it up. You can check the Guardian mm. article, but a large number of women um, from Ireland said that abortion in, in whatever case they had had it was the right decision for them yeah in the long term in the long term that was, was the right decision I think 87 87 percent of women said it was the right decision yeah. and many women have to come from ireland 
to the UK to have an abortion. Exactly. So they, they can do that. They yeah. just can't get it in their own, like, exactly. in where they live, which means they end up spending thousands and thousands of pounds and, yeah, to so get much. a service that they, they should be entitled to. Yeah. It's a, it's, it, I, I always find that a really peculiar thing, pseudoscience. People mm. using scientific language to, to back something up. It's, it's, it's so kind of counterintuitive that you would use science to back up something that's not true when all the science tells you you know, you know what I mean? So kind of science Absolutely. is proving you wrong, but you still want to use science. So yes. you trust science. Yes. You th- see <laughs> science as something that backs you up, but you use it. So you make up science. You make yeah, up science, exactly. So it supports odd. you. Just ask every flat earther out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just, exactly. It's not just this you debate. Know, it's, it's so many things. It's yeah. all over the world. We are joined by John Ford. Hello, John. Hello. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. How are you? All right. All interesting stuff again today? Yeah, well, thanks very much. How'd you do it? Um, it, it, Science keeps doing it. Science keeps happening and we just talk about it. Yeah, and and lots of science fiction as well. Yeah. I noticed. Yeah. Thanks for that tip-off, by the way. That was all right. Have you watched it? Yeah, yeah. All of it? No, not all of it. I was going to say, it's it's a big one, isn't it? Yeah. What's it called? Timeless. Timeless, yeah. 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 16 episodes. You've been enjoying that, Tushna. Well, I haven't started watching it yet, but I've heard good things from a friend who says that um, she was convinced that it was good, but also a bit mad. <laughs> yeah, it's like, an old, it's, like, it's like an old show called, um, when I was a kid, um, and I'm probably the oldest in the room here, uh, there was something called Time Tunnel years ago. It's a, it's a similar thing. Yeah, yeah they travelled backwards and forwards in time, solving crimes and what have you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's sort of a bit quantum leapy. It is, a little bit. But Which is you, no bad thing. If you like that sort of thing, then, then that's good. Um, you were talking about stars just now, didn't you? And whether a, a star was older than the universe. Yes. Yeah. Which is a bit like you being older than your dad, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very just, similar. Yeah. Just wouldn't happen. Well, th- this day in 1604, good old Johannes Kepler um, and other observers saw the appearance of a new star. For the very first time in the western sky. This is in the constellation of, uh, I can't pronounce this, what's, what's that there? Aphicius. Is it? I'm glad you pronounced that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I didn't realise Kepler went back that far. Uh, <laughs> well, quite, quite clearly he did. Yes, quite much so, yes. Yeah, well, they're, they're, I mean, what, what's the telescope named after him, isn't it? Yeah. Indeed, the telescope that discovered the first exoplanets. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and several wow. thousand since then. Right? Many, many, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, so a piece of science on this day. A couple more here. Any of you into sewing? Uh, no. No? Uh, 1855 on this day, uh, an American inventor called Isaac Singer. What do you think he patented? Uh, Yes, the sewing machine. <laughs> yeah. Singer, obviously. And in 1946, um, the, the Simmons Company uh, manufactured for the very first time. Do you get cold at night? No. Well, yes. if, if it's coming up, <laughs> up to winter and you have an electric blanket, well, wish it a very happy birthday. Born this day in 1946. Happy birthday, electric okay, blankets. Nice. Well, there you go. Yeah. There's a couple of things. There's a couple more here. I'll save them up for later. Oh, well, thank you very much, John, for, uh, for, for talking to us about these things. Uh, John is, of course, getting Bristol home after, after, after the news. Um, I, and um, thank you so much to uh, Hannah for joining me as always. Welcome. And also Toshna for joining Lovely me. Lovely being back. And yeah, uh, don't so worry, there aren't stars older than the universe, <laughs> but space is a space-time continuum. Thank you for listening. Science.